This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I am Ikrashi Gupta-Chima, your host for the New Books Network. Today, we will talk about the book, Heterotopic World Fiction, Thinking Beyond Biopolitics, with both Foucault and Dachi, which was published by Academic Studies Press in 2022. The book is co-written by Dr. Leslie Dickens and Dr. Mary Christine Laps. Sadly, Dr. Laps passed away recently, but Dr. Higgins is here with us to talk about the book and to honor and continue Dr. Laps' work. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Um, Higgins. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for this. Um, uh, yes, I'm a professor of English at York University in Toronto, where I specialize in feminist approaches to modernism and textual studies, wearing a very different hat. I also edit the prose of Jared Benley Hopkins, the Victorian poet. Marie Christine, who, yes, died in October, um, also was a professor at York, where she focused on discourse analysis, world literature, modernism and postmodernism. Thank you. Um, how would you describe this book to the audience? Um, how would I describe it? Um, yeah. uh, complicated, um, uh, worth the effort. Um, I would say that the book demonstrates uh, from a feminist and a transnational perspective, how to compare the works of, of three seemingly disparate authors. And mm -hmm. it explores their works in the context of a comparatively new field, which is world literature studies. So we take this, let's say a typical combination of authors. We have an English modernist novelist and critic and um, a post-World War II French theorist and philosopher and historian and a contemporary Canadian Sri Lankan novelist, poet and critic. So how does that work? Well, we realize that after a, a century of genocides and in the midst of this global pandemic, our book focuses on the critique of what Foucault calls biopolitics, the government of life through individuals and the general population, but the counterdevelopment of biopoetics, which is an aesthetics of life, elaborating the self as a practice of freedom. And I'm happy to explain what that means. The, the world fictions of Wolf Foucault and Dace produce transnational, transhistorical experiences for the reader. 
that's what the book does. Great. So how did you start working on the book? I hope you don't mind a long answer, but I, I no, was thinking I about this. Oh my God. <laughs> Me, Christine and I both started at York in 1987. You know, you were probably two. Um, she specialized in literary theory, especially Foucault and comparative studies. And I focused on late Victorian and modernist literature. She was asked to write, to contribute an essay to a journal that was working on law and literature. And she suggested that we collaborate. So we decided to work on the passport, um, which was a, a World War I temporary measure, at least it was supposed to be. And we wanted to do that because the passport, we argue, is a symbol of 20th century controversies about borders and mobility rights and citizenship and communities. Our method was Foucauldian. We were thinking about the passport and all of the texts in terms of governmentality, that is how the population and the individual, how they're all governed. So. The text included Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway and Andace's The English Patient. And we discovered two things. One, there was this surprising congruency um, among Wolf, Foucault, and Andace that we decided we would really like to explore further. And, and the second thing is we also discovered how much we enjoyed working together. You know, we did the reading and the research separately, but we sat together and we composed, you know, every sentence, every paragraph, everything. Um, so that's where the book started. And so we had our what, which was um, a transgredient study of this unlikely trio. And we had the why. And the why was to demonstrate the symmetries in the way that they analyze power relations and violence and war and gender and the connections between what Wolf terms uh, tyranny at home as it sanctions tyranny abroad. So we had those things in place. But to be honest, we didn't have our how. We didn't have a method. And that came in two stages. First, we wanted to compare how they use what Foucault calls heterotopias. That is these spaces that contest all other spaces, how you unsettle the grounds of established truths. And interestingly, it was a concept he worked on in 1966 and then dropped. Mm -hmm. um, and yet much of the work being that is indebted to Foucault uses heterotopias. It's a valuable concept. You know, it includes a garden or a cemetery or a theater or a cinema, a sauna, but also a prison and an asylum. So we discovered that all three of them rely on heterotopia. In some cases, the same. All three of them are somewhat obsessed by the ship, um, but they do more. And after a lot of comparative work, we realize that their texts depend on not just the spaces, but they instantiate what we call heterotopic processes, that is disposition, distraction, and dislocation. So all of that was in place, but it's still, that was just the first step. And then the second more complex stage concerned world lit. In the summer of, of 2012, Ray Christine attended the four-week Institute for World Literature at Harvard, and it proved to be transformative for her, for our work, and also for York's English department. Uh, Christine developed for the graduate program a diploma in world literature, the first of its kind in Canada. Yes. So within the context of world literature, we realized that was how the aesthetic and the political projects of Wolf Foucault and Dace really came into focus. So we did our homework. Um, we used conferences and essays to learn more about individual texts. And that's how we worked on the book. But we were very conscious of needing a method that was coherent, but also appropriate. And, and that's why 
world literature became such an opportunity for us? That's a fantastic answer. Yeah, I myself, I want to do more collaborative work, but I'm always kind of like wondering about the dynamics of that, like how to go about it, because if you don't already have an established chemistry with somebody, then um, I feel like it could take some time to figure that. So it's uh, really interesting for me to hear other people's collaborative experiences. And it sounds like yours was uh, fantastic, which is really good to hear. It was, um, and you're quite right, <clears throat> excuse me. It is about chemistry because you can like someone mm -hmm. and, and not work in the same way, or you can really respect someone. Um, I will say it it takes not just friendship, although, you know, it kind of tests friendship too. It You have to trust someone. We would make jokes about, you know, being to each other, you know, the mind that God forgot to give us. But more importantly, um, Christine is was probably the only person in the world who could simply say no, or she would put it no, and I would stop. You know, I would say, what about this and this and this? And then she would say, no, and I go, oh, all right. Um, or we would be working together and I, I knew that the sentence wasn't working and apparently I would just stop. And she would think, oh, here we go. And then, so we, it took a while. I mean, but it was, it was very exciting intellectually, but it was also working with the most, um, the most excellent uh, critic of your work and, and copy editor all at the same time. That sounds fantastic. And um, you already addressed this a little bit in your um, answer, but I'm going to pose a question anyway to see if you have more to offer us here. So how do you define heterotopic world fiction? What is it? And what is its place in the academic field of world literature? You asked the best questions, which I really appreciate, but ones that I have to unpack. So if you don't mind, I want to work backwards. I want to yeah, start with world lit and then the place of heterotopic world fiction. So world literature is a, a very dynamic, uh, but also hotly contested field. Right. You know, there are some comparative literature specialists, including Gayatri Spivak and Emily Apter, who simply trash it. They have they they have no use for world literature. Um, other people, including David Damrosh and Y. Chi Dimok and Vilashini Kupan, stress the ethics of reading that world literature enables. Um, Franco Moretti, a well-known figure yeah. in the field, he's the one who says world literature isn't an object, it's a problem, and a problem that asks for a new critical method. So it's all about networks. It's networks of relations among geographically and chronologically distant texts. And it means the profound excitement of access, but you know, often in translation, which is why some comparativists decry it. Um, but it's a means of engaging text with as much cosmopolitan breadth as possible. Also, um, very importantly, to counter what we would call the pressures of globalization that have meant, you know, a homogenization of cultures and cultural products. So that's world literature in a nutshell. Uh, the writings of Wolf Foucault and Dace are world literature, we argue, because they cross national and linguistic boundaries to counter this global phenomenon, the rise of biopolitics. Um, other world fictions, for example, address uh, international ecological disasters or the human crisis of refugees or world wars. We focus on what Galene Tianoff uh, calls a particular zone of world literature. So the United Kingdom, France, and two of their former colonies, uh, Canada and Sri Lanka. So 
that's the field. Uh, heterotopic world fiction is informed by this, this, the importance of transformation and thinking otherwise. Um, some people might be wondering though, yeah, but they're calling Foucault, they're talking about fiction and they're talking about Foucault, but there is an answer for that. And I had to write the quote up because of course I couldn't remember it accurately. When he was asked about the status of his writing in a 1977 interview, Foucault replied, quote, I realize full well that I've never written anything other than fictions. I do not want to say that this is outside of truth. It seems to me that it is possible to make fiction work in truth, to induce truth effects with a discourse of fiction, and to work in such a way that the discourse of truth elicits fabricate something that doesn't yet exist and therefore fictionalizes. So you can imagine how exciting we found it when we found this quotation. And it's an idea to which he returns a number of times. And similarly, there are characters in Ondaatje's novels, um, Pelikana, the epigraphist in um, Anil's Ghost, um, speaks about finding the hidden truths in the official inscriptions. And there's this wonderful moment in um, Wolf's A Room of One's Own when the lecturer says, when a subject is highly controversial, one cannot tell the truth. Fiction here is likely to contain more truth than fact. Lies will flow from my lips, but there may perhaps be some truth mixed up with them. For it is you to seek out this truth and decide whether any part of it is worth keeping. So that's how we ra not just rationalize, but that's why their texts invite us to think about fiction that capaciously. Thank you. Uh, so can you speak some about the conceptual comparison between biopolitics, which is a better known idea, and biopolitics, which I think is lesser known? Oh, absolutely. Um, both of these terms come from Foucault, all the hard stuff in the book. <laughs> Not all the hard stuff, but the terminology. Um, biopolitics, according to Foucault, is the government of life through particular individuals and the general population. So individual, national, international. It has gradually become the dominant mode for the exercise of power throughout the long 20th century. Um, and in different political regimes, you know, it could be from liberal democratic to fascist to socialist to communist. It's that cradle to grave shepherding of individual behaviors, all correlated to population management and it involves security measures, health, education, labor, um, happiness and pleasure, all developed to create what one would call a normal way of life. Mm -hmm. um, and the impact of biopolitics, uh, I'm sure we all would agree, is especially apparent now, world refugee crisis, um, people you know, being caged at borders, um, the global pandemic uh, that we're now in the midst of with the new colonialism and vaccine diplomacy um, differently affecting individuals and entire politicians, uh, sorry, entire populations, you know, depending on gender, race, class, and where you live. All of this uh, speaks to biopolitics. So Foucault developed this concept and invested a lot of time working on it. The interesting thing about biopoetics, which stems from this idea of yes, but where is what Foucault would call the counterconduct, or where where is resistance possible? Where can you imagine it? That's biopoetics. And you're right, it's far less uh, familiar. 
Foucault defined it as the technologies of the self, that is the aesthetic and ethical possibilities of self-fashioning. But he only used the term once, and this was actually Marie-Christine's gift to our project um, because she read all of the texts in French, worked and, and worked on all of the translations so we could make sure that we were what we were mm -hmm. quoting was accurate. It's in a manuscript footnote in a 1981 lecture. Like that's how obscure the term is. But we realized that biopoetics divine, defines diverse efforts to fabricate one's own life. Um, that is, how do you oppose biopolitical normalization? There are a number of biopoetical techniques as defined in various Foucault lectures, and they include the idea of Parisia, and Esquisis is where he trots out all of his fancy classical terms, but it's all about how do you alter knowledge and how do you mobilize the reader? Um, so he takes tactics from wildly different disciplines and retools them. So we argue that their biopoetical, biopoetical methods function politically, aesthetically, and, um, and also um, ethically. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. Yes, thank you for explaining that. Um, so how do you read biopolitics in the works by Wolf and Ondaatje? Ah, we suggest that their texts mm -hmm. provide multiple means to apprehend and resist and alter the forces of biopolitics. Um, and we think that their critique of biopolitical vectors such as gender, which Interestingly, one critic, one critic calls the white elephant in the room of world literature. Um, but they're also interested in race and class and community and how all of these can counter global forces of capitalism, imperialism, mm -hmm. and ethnic nationalism. So we do this work in part one of the book by doing a deep dive into three texts. We, we use Foucault's Discipline and Punish in relation to Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway and Ondaatje's In the Skin of a Lion. And we demonstrate how the novels show, as Wolf puts in Mrs. Dalloway, how very, very dangerous it is to live every day. Um, and in Mrs. Dalloway, we demonstrate, for example, how all of the characters who, of course, think they're exceptional and, and different, um, all of them, uh, from the society hostess and the imperial administrator to the shell-shocked World War I veteran and the peer of the realm, they're all, their lives are rarefied and disciplined and molded to fit established patterns. So much so that these characters become normal, perfectly predictable for others, but strange and incomprehensible to themselves. And that's how Wolf does it. In Ondaatje's In the Skin of a Lion, he looks back to roughly the same historical period as Mrs. Dalloway, but he focuses on Toronto, the imperial outpost. And instead of glittering parties and elegant luncheons, this narrative focuses on the precarious lives of immigrants, both local and international, who were employed to build the city in the 1920s and 30s. Um, Andrade forces the reader to register the gradual and relentless mortification of these laboring bodies, um, what one critic calls bare knuckle capitalism, war against the workers. So that's how these transgredient texts, that's a, a word we borrowed from Bakhtin, that's how they work. It's, we are arguing for all three of them, it's a difference in focus, but not of kind. So what the novels of Wolf and 
Ondaatje can do um, in terms of gendered and racialized bodies that are policed by institutions, Foucault theorizes these institutional sites. So that's that's how they work, if that mm -hmm. if that explains it. And I would say that what's so interesting is 50 years before Foucault developed the problematic of biopower and its implications for sexuality and race and war and peace, Wolf's mm -hmm. novels are documenting the experience with a historical density in everyday life in night and day and to the lighthouse and the years in between the acts. And, and I would suggest that in what we find is that the objects of one discursive practice mm -hmm. serves as the grounds for the others. And so you have each shedding light on the shadows of the others. So that's that's how I would answer that question. Very cool. That's fascinating. And now I'm just gonna ask the same question about with bioquatics. So that's how do you quite all right. Bioquatics it is it is the least sense. familiar. And mm -hmm. I, I appreciate the question very much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody's listening and says, um, self-fashioning, what does that mean? Biopoetics provides methods for untying truth or truth from relations of domination and subjectivization. And biopoetics is all about the work that one does to be different from or other than what you were predicted to be, if I could put it that way. What we are, what all of these discourses and all of these identity formations produce. And the techniques that include parisia, which um, is dangerous truth-telling, you know, speaking truth to power, um, uh, how to live in truth, as Foucault argues. Um, he also uh, takes the uh, classical, the ancient notion of ascesis, um, you know, an elaboration or exercise of the self. It's sort of the work that we do. You can't just wake up and say, hey there, I'm biopoetic. You have to do the work. He's also, one of the tactics that he offers is the experience book, this idea of an experimental textual process that alters knowledge and mobilizes the reader. And we focus on that, on biopoetics, by demonstrating how clusters of texts do this work. So for example, um, we study the fact that all three of them were interested in criminals. I mean, who knew? Foucault in Moi-Pierre-Rivière, uh, Wolf's Flush, which features a dog napping, and Andache's The Collected Works of Billy the Kid. And they're all three of them also interested in life writing and theorize uh, life writing in Wolf's Between the Acts and The English Patient and The History of Sexuality, but also um, interested in biopoetics as it develops the grounds for agency, but also as they imagine what we would call collective practices of solidarity. Um, and I guess the one other example I could give you is um, this idea of the Parisiastes, the, the person who speaks the truth regardless, mm -hmm. um, you know, something that your work is, is very interested in. So we study, for example, uh, the lecture, that fictionalized lecture in Wolf's A Room of One's Own. Charming, mm -hmm. disarming, but utterly courageous, delivering unpopular truths about gender and discrimination and misogyny and tyranny. And in Andache's novel, Anil's Ghost, he compares Anil Tissera, a forensic pathologist who is committed to Western rationalization, which she loves, and Palipana, the archaeologist who learned to find those inscriptions and their hidden histories. So it's a novel designed to demonstrate 
how both of these characters struggle towards Parisia and what the consequences are. I, I also wanted to say that they work both positively. So for example, uh, Wolf presents Lily Briscoe uh, in, into the lighthouse, you know, the artist who can't paint until she gags the voice of patriarchy. And Wolf fictionalizes Elizabeth Barrett, the poet, and in Wolf's version of the life, she first um, E.B. stands up to dognappers who have stolen her beloved puppy, Flush. But then she stands up for herself by leaving the comforts and confines of her father's home and runs away to get married. Um, and Andache focuses on the writer's particular ethical challenges in the cat's table and running in the family. So they're always doing the work. But when I was thinking about your question, um, both Wolf and Andache demonstrate the need for biopoetics by presenting characters who recoil from change or the hard work of becoming otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, in Between the Acts, a, a novel that was set in, very deliberately in June 1939, so you know we know what's going to come. The characters are imprisoned by norms and gradually immobilized by frustration and fear. And the most recent example of a similar phenomenon in Andache's canon is the character of Nathaniel Williams in Moorlight. Um, and if your listeners have not read it, an extraordinary novel, which Andache published in 2018. Nathaniel's 14 as the novel begins in the final months of World War II. Then his father disappears due to mental illness. And his mother is a spy who becomes caught up in the early years of the Cold War with um, state-sponsored extrajudicial killings. Um, but Nathaniel, as an adult, he works in the National Archives cleansing England's war records. In other words, he chooses to tie himself to lies in order to ensure personal and national safety. So as I say, in both canons, one finds uh, the characters who are actively doing this work and, the, and plots that are designed to show us the consequences. Um, but at the same time, they are daring enough to demonstrate what happens when you don't. What happens when you are, um, for lack of a better word, stuck, and maybe you don't even know that you're stuck. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So that's biopoetics. Great, awesome, wonderful examples. Um, amazing answer, <laughs> like, taught <laughs> me so much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you chose books across four millennia from four continents, and you already described the process as um, like focusing on a particular zone in world literature. What are some challenges of producing this kind of comparative expansive <laughs> Well, good question. Um, several kinds of challenges. The first challenge, obviously, the breadth of the project really did require two people, mm -hmm. different backgrounds, different kinds of expertise. Um, as a Marie-Christine, who at one point went to Paris, uh, this was before a lot of Foucault's lectures had been published, to work in the archive. Um, I am a manuscript person, so I'm the one who did the deep dive into the first two drafts of The Waves, Wolf's novel, just to see how the novel developed. So... Mm -hmm. We did that. We also were both of us very happy to work intermediately, you know, to go down any number of rabbit holes, you know, of research. We read Herodotus's histories and Gilgamesh and learned about jazz and cubism and the pageant craze in England in the 1920s and 30s. But I will say that in terms of 
the luxury of the time to do that work. Uh, the academy, if I can generalize like this, you know, as you say, it's not always encouraged close collaborative mm -hmm. work. Uh, the career, you know, uh, you and I are at sort of opposite ends of that spectrum, but the career as it's defined currently is all about individual accomplishments, right? Uh, your doctorate, your tenure, your postdoctoral fellowship, your mm -hmm. tenure track job, the right number of publications to get tenure, et cetera. So it was simply good fortune that we became friends and found out how much we enjoyed working together. But we also had the time to do all of the reading and the research. So that's one kind of challenge. And uh, I must say the magic word for the challenge was tenure because we could afford the time. But the second challenge is that, you know, clearly there's nothing on the surface of the project that makes any sense. You know, our working title for the book was Wolf Foucault and Andache, Go Figure, you know, which amused us, but kind of summed up what we were doing. So, and of course, like a modernist who works on Wolf has no reason to think about Andache. And uh, Canadian and post-colonial specialists don't often say to themselves, hey, doesn't Virginia Wolf talk about this too? Um, and so the project was and is in Congress. And I have to admit, two of our initial readers reports said just that. Mm -hmm. um, we were very fortunate that Galine Tianov at Academic Studies Press not only understood the project, but supported it because um, that's not everybody's response. Um, other challenges. Wolf died in 1941, Foucault died in 1984. So their canons, although daunting in scope um, mm -hmm. uh, and size, relatively fixed. And yet Foucault's lectures series have been appearing throughout the last decade. And only two years ago, the fourth and final volume in the history of sexuality was published, Confessions of the Flesh. So we had to stop. We read it. We did our work. But Andace published two novels while we were working away, uh, Cat's Table and then Warlight. And you can imagine our trepidation before reading the books. Like, what if they torpedoed? Like, what if all of our work, what if we were wrong? So happily, oh my goodness, happily, um, the books only confirmed what we were discerning about heterotopic spaces. Uh, we had been writing about their interest in the ship and there's the Cat's Table, which is a book about a ship. Well, a journey on a ship. Um, but also, they also confirmed Ondace's interest in war as the defining transnational crisis of the 20th century and the emergence of what Foucault calls the international citizenship of the governed. So those are the kinds of challenges uh, that we face, both personal and, uh, shall we say, institutional. It's also, you know, to be honest, why... We did enjoy ourselves so much, but with frustrations and, you know, stops and pauses. Um, it's also why the book took more than a decade for us to write. Yes, definitely. There are, um, in answering this question, we also responded to some of the things that came into my mind while I was reading this. You know, you read the book and um, with some books, you quickly realize that this must have taken like years of work to accomplish this, you know, and this is that kind of a book, but also... Um, you're very right in like all of these questions, you know, like you pick up these different writers who don't, you know, seemingly appear like their work has a lot of relationship with each other and then you try to read them together. So um, thanks for responding to those because I think like a lot of readers, like they definitely will have those questions um, when they read the book and it answers them perfectly. Just kind of like, you know, approaching the book with a more open and um, I guess like with more information about how the book kind of like became into this project that is now in the world. and. 
helps us understand not only biopolitics but also biopoetics. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and may I say as well, I mean the as I say, the canons are daunting. Um extraordinary opportunities, but yes. daunting. I mean with with Foucault there are you know the books that everybody knows, but as Marie Christine taught me, you also have to read I mean, to do the work, you have to read all of the lecture series. Yes. Um, as well as all of the, in, the man was always giving interviews. Mm -hmm. I mean, interesting, uh, profoundly interesting. And and um, so there's that. One, when I was on sabbatical while we were working on the book, uh, my job, happily, like this is not a, a, an ordeal, but my job was to read all of Wolf's essays, all six volumes of them. You know, wonderful way to spend a few months, but just to make sure that we weren't missing anything. Yeah. So yeah, that it took, and with Andace, um, who's uh, who's not done a lot of criticism, but mm -hmm. has done extraordinary poetry. Um, and also of all things, uh, a book on film editing. Uh, he met uh, Walter Murch, uh, a major film editor, uh, when The English Patient was being turned into the movie and was fascinated by it. And of course, as often happens, you read yeah. the book, well, one, because it has pictures and it's all about <laughs> film, but also because of course, Andace is using Murch's work to think about the creative process and the rewriting process and, and has a, a great deal to say about creative method. Um, so we were delighted to do the work. Um, but as I say, <laughs> I would make jokes about, you know, next time, you know, can we pick people who, you know, wrote two things each and leave it at that. Um, although, you know, we wouldn't have as much to work with, but it, it that was the challenge, uh, but you're quite right. You have to have the personal and professional opportunities mm -hmm. uh, to do that kind of, re to do that kind of research and that writing. Yes, definitely. You're right. Um, do you have any suggestions for academics or readers about approaching this work, working this book? How should they do that? I would say to approach it optimistically, yeah. um, maybe pack a lunch. Um, if I've made it sound like a smorgasbord, it's not that. We're hoping that, we're hoping for readers who are not familiar with the works of all three. And so we we did try to be as explanatory as possible. So for example, you can read a section that summarizes what happens in um, Orlando, you know, without mm -hmm. thinking, oh, I can't, I can't read their book till I go read Wolf's novel. Um, we are interested in how all three of them have something to teach us about geopolitical relations of power that define this present. Um, and I think that readers, will find themselves wanting to know more about world literature. I mean, we try and summarize some things and introduce mm -hmm. some ideas. We we decided very deliberately um, that you can either do one of two things. You can either make the book all about our dialogue with other critics or make the book about our dialogue with these three writers. And it was already pretty crowded, as you can tell, and, and complicated. So we very deliberately, um, uh, did the homework, if you will. Um, but we do most of that work in the notes. We wanted um, a book there where people could concentrate on this 
atypical analysis, you know, with so many different concepts working. So, so yes, um, the, the scholarship is there, but it's in the notes. Um, so we wanted a different kind of dialogue. And the other thing I would just say that is the way that, you know, to approach the book as a meditation on reading. Uh, we took to heart Foucault's argument about the experience book. Um, uh, and in one of her essays, one of the last essays Wolf published uh, called Thoughts on Peace in an Air Raid, um, where she says, if we cannot imagine peace, we will never realize it. And so we, we tried to produce a, an experience book that demonstrated again and again, the readers, the consequences of readers' ethical engagement, but also how reading uh, can persuade us to change and persuade us to look for change, you know, in, in the other things that we read, in the, in the ways that we conduct our lives. And I'm sounding too lofty and ethical now, but we were, we were trying to uh, produce a book that honored the way that the three of them wrote and and the spirit in which they wrote which is always to critique um always to ask questions and always to as Foucault puts it to refuse who we are um in in one of his um press conferences uh he said says you know it's time for us to refuse who we are and this this idea of how the three of them refuse the norms is something that we try to um, respond to as much as possible. So I think that's how people would approach the book. Great, awesome, um, wonderful. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation about heterotopic world fiction, thinking beyond biopolitics with both Foucault and Gatchik. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you so much for the questions and the conversation. It's been a pleasure.